I'm Rachel Martin. After hosting Morning Edition for years, I know that the news can wear you down. So we made a new podcast called Wild Card, where a special deck of cards and a whole bunch of fascinating guests help us sort out what makes life meaningful. It's part game show, part existential deep dive, and it is seriously fun. Join me on Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts. Only from NPR. This is a CBC Podcast. Welcome to Ideas. I'm Nala Ayed. So the big question that we are trying to answer with the research I'm performing is how the universe was formed. What is the origin of the universe? Do you want more than that, or do you want me to? Yeah, keep going? <laughs> that's a big, that's a big question. That big question has been driving scientists for centuries, and now hundreds of physicists believe they're getting closer to answering it. We have to go deep, deep underground to look for neutrinos. Benjamin Tam is finishing his PhD in particle astrophysics at Queen's University. He takes us to a science lab deep inside the Canadian Shield, two kilometers below the surface of the Earth. What are we supposed to be afraid of? Like, what could technically happen or theoretically happen in the worst nightmares? Sound, we want to go there? <laughs> the quest to observe the neutrino, the so called ghost particle, and witness it demonstrating a behavior no one has ever seen. One that may explain the existence of matter itself. This episode is part of our ongoing series, Ideas from the Trenches, where we showcase innovative PhD work from across the country. The series is produced by Tom Howell and Nikola Lukšić. No, not at all. I mean, like I said, uh, you just tell me what to say, and I'll, uh, <laughs> I, I can ramble as long as you'd like, you know, what you'd say, that's for sure. We first met Benjamin Tam early in the pandemic, online, of course, as was the way of the world. All right, so we know that the universe is made out of matter. So we are made out of particles, but on the flip side, there's a dark side of every particle, and that's called the antiparticle. We know that particles and antiparticles are the same in every way except an antiparticle, has an opposite charge. And what this means is that when particles, such as us, interact with an antiparticle version of ourselves, we destroy each other. Now, particles and antiparticles are created at the same time. So in the early universe, when everything is very compact, as the Big Bang is forming the universe and everything is spreading apart, in the very compact universe, particles and antiparticles should have been formed in equal quantities and they should have seen each other right away and they should have destroyed each other. So the universe, we believe, should have been destroyed the moment it was created. But as we know, we exist, so that wasn't the case. So the question we're trying to answer is why not? All right, so what we believe is that the neutrino, and like every other particle, we believe the neutrino has an antiparticle called the antineutrino. Now, the funny thing about the neutrino is that it's got a specific set of properties with its mass and its uh, neutral charge that the neutrino and the antineutrino could, in fact, be the exact same thing. They could be two ways of looking at the same particle. Therefore, at the beginning of the universe, when all these particles and antiparticles are created, you can create only neutrinos, but not antineutrinos, because they're the same thing. 
Whoa, we're gonna need some help in this episode. I can tell the the arts brain. <laughs> back up there. That's uh... no, it's not you. Believe me. <laughs> so they are our ally as existing things. Exactly, or that's what we believe, at least, or that's what I'm trying to prove at the moment. And they're ghosts. <laughs> yep. So they're frequently called the ghost particle. The reason being that uh, in the sun trillions upon trillions upon trillions of them are created every second so much so that every second 60 billion of them pass through your nail your fingernail what but in your entire lifetime you'll probably not feel a single one did you just say six billion 60 billion 60 billion are firing from the sun into my fingernail through your fingernail, this this very second, 60 billion of them are moving right through you. Wow. People, g- are, people are get impressed by these big numbers, but frankly, once it passes 6 billion, I've stopped counting. Yeah, you know? right. <laughs> so it's 60 I billion. Would, I would even be impressed if it was 6. That's such a wild th- idea. Yeah, but that's why they, we call them the ghost particles, because it's very hard to detect them. They pass through everything. They're impossible to see. They're very hard to detect. And the only way we're able to detect them is throughout the entire planet Earth. Every second, a couple of particles do interact. Something in the rock, something in the Earth does interact with the neutrino. And we can see the neutrino bounce off these particles in the Earth, and the particle recoils, and this recoil spreads out energy throughout the Earth. So that's what we're trying to look for, this recoil energy. And how often does that happen? Uh, In the entire planet, only a couple every second at the most. Wow. Let us be frank, neither Nicola nor I have ever shown much promise when it comes to science. I didn't even attempt physics or chemistry in high school. So we visited a library for help and found a book aimed roughly at our level of science literacy. It's a picture book called I'm a Neutrino, Tiny Particles in a Big Universe. Hi, I'm a neutrino, and I am so small that matter to me barely matters at all. I am a particle, like electrons and light. I can pass through you without stopping my flight. I'm electrically neutral. I don't have a charge. And with my small mass, I don't feel very large. My friends and I travel from more than one place. We come from the sun, or the earth, or from space. Even though my friends and I are so small, we can teach you the biggest things of all. Ah. Beautiful. <laughs> Eve Vavayakis is the author of I'm a Neutrino, Tiny Particles in a Big Universe. And she's a postdoctoral fellow at Cornell University studying cosmology. As for the children's book she wrote, she hopes it will capture the imaginations of young audiences. I've seen little babies start to try to say neutrino, um, but I think the age range is usually, you know, four to four to seven. But I... I think that it has a larger range than that. I, I love that. Little baby saying neutrino. Then the next step is, uh, what exactly is a neutrino? <laughs> How do you, yes. like, my mind is still trying to work through what exactly it is. Yeah, so as humans, we're biased by the types of physical forces that we interact with every day as we are navigating the universe around us. So everything you see and everything you touch, um, those things are dominated by this force called electromagnetism. 
And if you look at light and visual colors, that's, those are photons of a certain wavelength. And neutrinos are tricky to understand because they don't interact via this force, meaning we can't see them with our eyes and we can't feel them with our fingertips like the, the table in front of us. So neutrinos only interact via this weak force. And because of that, they just can fly through anything. They, they're very small. They have a tiny mass. And they're constantly coursing through our bodies without us knowing because that's just not how we interact with the world around us. But they are these tiny little particles that are fundamental, meaning we can't subdivide them into smaller particles. And they are critical to how the whole world works in terms of particle physics. So they're part of this standard model of particle physics, which describes the types of particles that are around us in our universe, all interacting with one another to make up the world that we see even if we can't see them directly. And why do we need to include them in this model of standard model of physics if we never really need to meet one or interact with it? So the interactions they have with other particles that we can understand a little better, like electrons, through the weak force and gravitational forces, make up the physics that dictate how the universe exists. So you can't just take neutrinos away without messing up the whole standard model of particle physics. All right. And you're a, a postdoc at Cornell? I am. That's right. What is your focus? What are you working on? So as a National Science Foundation fellow, I'm working on developing first light instrumentation. These are these giant cold cameras that I am going to be deploying down in the Atacama Desert in Chile to observe the oldest light in the universe, which we can study and start to understand how the universe evolved and formed over time and answer some of these big questions that we still have about the universe and its components and evolution. Do neutrinos play a role in this? Yes, they do. Um, I'm very excited to use the universe as a laboratory for particle physics because this is so interesting to me that we can zoom out to the largest scales that we can possibly observe looking at this large-scale structure or how the universe came to evolve and collapse down all of the matter into these structures that we're more familiar with, like galaxies and clusters of galaxies and planets and everything that we think of when we look up into the night sky. And as it turns out, this matter condensing down into these very large structures was actually impacted by neutrinos, because since neutrinos carry a small amount of mass with them as they travel, and they travel so freely, they essentially act as these little mass bandits, taking some of the matter of the universe and running away with it so that it doesn't collapse down into this large-scale structure. So by looking with a telescope up at these structures, we can actually see the imprint that neutrinos had on our universe. And I find it so fascinating that such a, a small particle can have such a big impact. And that's part of what I tried to express in this book. So here's a, here's a basic question. So you're looking at ancient light. Is that right? That's right. So are the number of neutrinos in the world just expanding and expanding and expanding, and then these ancient neutrinos are still floating around? Or like, do neutrinos disappear after some time? So neutrinos are constantly interacting with other particles. So they are, you know, they're ancient neutrinos that are part of this cosmic neutrino background that we might be able to observe. And there are also new neutrinos constantly being created from different particle interactions. So I think one way you can think about it is some neutrinos have existed for a very, very long time as they travel through the universe unimpeded, and some are interacting constantly with all the other particles in our universe, and so there are new ones all the time. Are neutrinos that are 
created hundreds of light years away, are they making their way to planet Earth? Yes. So when we're looking at the cosmic microwave background, for example, this ancient light are photons, light particles that are traveling for a very long time, interacting only rarely with the structures in our universe before they reach us here on Earth and pass through our telescopes. And similarly, there are some ancient neutrinos that have traveled to us for for many billions of years. Um, But it can be difficult to pick apart which ones those are. Who wins the race, the photons or the neutrinos? So neutrinos don't travel as fast as light, but they travel very, very close to the speed of light. They're so light that they're able to do that. But nothing travels faster than light particles or photons. So it's interesting because the PhD we're working with, uh, Ben, his lab is two kilometers below the surface of the Earth. In the grand scheme of things, you're looking at the universe and he's looking at what can be seen in this tiny by comparison, whole. <laughs> like, it's, it's just interesting to me that the the study can be so vast. Yeah, this excites me so much, just how many ways we can look at the universe on these different scales and how it all is part of one whole. And that's why I got into cosmology in the first place. I found it so exciting that you can study the universe as one system. When you look out as far as you can in time, you're looking at our whole universe and how it evolved because of particle physics in addition to gravitational forces, cosmology, all of these things working together as one system. And if you dig down into deep into Earth and, and start looking at these, these particles with a low background of noise so you can make these careful measurements, then you can really learn uh, about the standard model of particle physics in that way as well. So there are many ways to get at the fundamental forces of nature that we're all trying to understand. I'm a mysterious particle, and I like it that way, making physicists work hard to understand me today. They still don't know my mass. Can you believe that it's true? Who will find out? Could it one day be you? One, two, three, I think that the idea that there are forces and things that we can't see with our own eyes that do change the world around us is a really compelling one that children can understand and get curious about. Yeah, it's like magic, really, sort of. But maybe not. Maybe the opposite of magic. (laughs) Maybe don't say that to a scientist. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you know what's wonderful about physics is that it feels magical sometimes. And that's part of what gets us all excited to study it. Because even though we can understand it, it doesn't make it seem less magical. I think the world is a a really amazing place. And um, I think the magic of physics is something that excites scientists, even if they can wrap their heads around parts of it. Eve, uh, thank you so much. This has been fascinating, and it certainly tickles the imagination. Much appreciated. Thank you so much for having me. Eve Favayakis is a postdoctoral fellow at Cornell University and the author of I'm a Neutrino tiny particles in a big universe. Scientists first proved that neutrinos exist in 1956. Until then, there'd been a mathematical conjecture. On a number of occasions in the recent history of physics, they have in this way predicted a particle and then later discovered it. The neutrino is the prime example. Here's the author Isaac Asimov explaining it to Dick Cavett in 1989. 
It was discovered 25 years after it was predicted as a necessary consequence of the conservation of energy, yeah. the conservation of momentum, and the conservation of particle-antiparticle. So it was known and not known. That's right. It like was, if you had a teeter-totter that was balanced at one end, you know there's something at the other end, even though exactly, you can't see the other end. Exactly. Decades later, though, there was still almost nothing intelligent one could really say about the neutrino. Fast forward to the 1990s. And the birth of Benjamin Tam. And scientists are finally coughing up some answers. I am glad to be here for the opening of the Sudbury Neutrino Observatory. Canada leaps to the front of the race to explain the neutrino, opening the Sudbury Neutrino Observatory. There are indications that neutrinos have mass, and we hope that Sudbury will confirm this. We were able to observe these neutrinos at roughly one an hour, and uh, in the process of these measurements could resolve the question of whether neutrinos from the sun changed their type. It confirms that yes, neutrinos have mass. This is a vital clue to their true role in the universe. The breaking news this morning, the announcement from Stockholm that the Nobel Prize in Physics has been awarded this year to a Canadian. <laughs> Physicist Arthur McDonald is Canada's latest winner of a Nobel Prize. <laughs> Pretty unusual, I have to say, but uh, it's a great uh, tribute to the, to the uh, hard work of all our team uh, over many years. And uh, it's wonderful to have that happen in Canada and uh, for us to be able to give uh, many students uh, a real eureka moment. But one big question remained. Is the neutrino its own antiparticle? In other words, when one neutrino meets another neutrino, do they zap each other out of existence? Cue Ben and his PhD research. That's the big question of the time. If we solve this question, then we kind of solve the mystery of the origin of the universe. It's not as difficult as seeing a neutrino, but paying Ben a visit at his workplace is a challenge. So you can put your hard hat on and make I joined sure Ben and a few of his colleagues for their morning commute into the science lab. We meet in a frozen, floodlit parking lot at 5.30 a.m., about half an hour's drive from Sudbury. This is the entrance to the Valet Creighton mine, an extremely deep hole containing nickel, copper, platinum, gold, silver, and particle astrophysicists. We join maybe 60 miners on their way to work aboard an open-sided elevator called the cage. Hmm? A little ambiance lighting, you guys? We're completely in the dark, except for a faint lamp in one corner. And we're standing extremely close to each other, front to front in pairs. It's a formation known as the zipper, designed to fit the maximum number of miners onto the metal platform at once. So this is the cage? Yes. It's not unlike riding the subway, except the cage goes down. In the lights that we're passing, you'll notice there's every couple seconds there's some light that we pass. Yeah. So that's from the levels. There's a level about every 200 feet that we pass. And a level means like a seam or a something's happening there. It would be a drift. Up. 
and drift is a mining term for horizontal tunnel. So we're going to walk through a mine drift from the cage to Snow Lab, and it's just a horizontal tunnel through the mine. Blair Flynn is the outreach officer at Snow Lab. Snow, spelled S-N-O, stands for Sudbury Neutrino Observatory, home to many underground experiments, including Snow Plus. That's the one that Ben works on. Two kilometers passes remarkably quickly when you're dropping down into the earth. The trip takes less than five minutes. We arrive in a surprisingly well-lit, dusty cavern. It's about two stories high, with steel netting holding back the walls and the ceiling, and it's hot, around 30 degrees. The miners head off in one direction, and we go in the other, following a set of rail tracks through a tunnel. Emergency refuge only. This is not a lunchroom. Yes, that is the emergency fresh air station. And in the event of an emergency, you would go into there as your safe location. What a... What are we supposed to be afraid of? Like, what could technically happen or theoretically happen in the worst nightmares? Sam, do we want to go there? <laughs> the hike is about a kilometer and a half, and the tunnel keeps getting smaller and narrower, and the air becomes thick with rock dust. Apart from that, it's quite nice, and I feel the anticipation building to finally meet Ben's neutrino detector. Forgot to ask if there's toilets down here. Yes, we have three of the deepest flush toilets in the world. Wow. Blair's being too modest there. Snow Lab's flush toilet is, in fact, the deepest in the world in terms of its location. In case you want to know, the sewage travels out of the lab into a large vat of hungry microorganisms who devour it, leaving an odorless product, which is then dehydrated and brought back up to the surface via the elevator. I'm told that during the pandemic, this lab was mostly closed, and so there were not enough defecating scientists to feed the microorganisms. So one lab worker had to venture down in the cage, bringing dog food to throw into the vat and keep the creatures alive. So this is the area just outside the lab. We've got a concrete floor. We've still got our rail lines. We've got two rail lines now, so we can organize our equipment that's entering and leaving the lab and different supplies. No lab. This is the area where we wash all of the mine dust off our boots. The whole point of this lab is to be about the cleanest, least contaminated, least irradiated place on Earth. And a hot, sweaty mine tunnel is probably one of the dirtiest places you can put yourself. To enter the neutrino lab, we had to take everything off, including our underwear, and leave it outside. Then, after showering, we're given standard-issue underwear and socks along with identical blue coveralls and hairnets and hard hats. We wear plain, easy-to-clean boots that never leave the lab. And we wait almost an hour while the lab's cleaning specialists wipe and check every earbud and microphone and cable and notepad and pen, making sure each is free of dirt or other loose contaminants. We keep moving on? Sure. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, over there you see one of the dark matter experiments we've got going on. They're second generation down here. Over here is uh, the next large dark matter experiment that's being built. This lab is also a labyrinth. Tunnels in all directions. The walls bulge out in odd places following the shape of rocks. All the rock surfaces are covered with a creamy-colored spray-on concrete. 
The scientists invented their own version of this shockcrete, as it's called. Yeah, the most studied shockcrete. We've had to study this shockcrete for all kinds of qualities to make sure it's the lowest background radioactivity. Not that concrete makes for a great dinner conversation, but it does point to how every element in this lab had to be considered and designed and redesigned and specially manufactured to avoid ruining the experiments. So down here are temperatures as low as you can get in the universe, within this jar right now. So they have technology that can bring, you know, bring it almost down to absolutely zero. And some people say it's actually the coldest place in the entire universe because it's, it's colder than space itself. Right there. Right inside that can, yep. We're like six feet away from it. Yeah, exactly. So uh, you can see right next to the can is a little miniature clean room. I said earlier, you know, we're a class 2000 clean room in the lab, but some parts of the lab are even cleaner. So in there, I'm not really sure exactly what the number is, but it's about probably a factor of 10 or 100 cleaner. One of the cleanest places in the entire world. A lot of superlatives when you're down here. Everything's the deepest, the coldest, the cleanest. <laughs> well, that's the magic of this sort of science, right? You're listening to Ideas. You can hear us on CBC Radio 1 in Canada, across North America, on Sirius XM, in Australia, on ABC Radio National, and around the world at cbc.ca slash ideas. You can also hear Ideas on the CBC Listen app and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Nala Ayed. I'm Rachel Martin. After hosting Morning Edition for years, I know that the news can wear you down. So we made a new podcast called Wild Card, where a special deck of cards and a whole bunch of fascinating guests help us sort out what makes life meaningful. It's part game show, part existential deep dive, and it is seriously fun. Join me on Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts, only from NPR. Two kilometers deep in the Canadian Shield near Sudbury is a neutrino detector experiment named Snow Plus. Benjamin Tam is finishing his PhD dissertation, reporting on his part in the experiment. His work is the subject of this episode of Ideas from the Trenches, our series highlighting PhD research across Canada. You can see pictures of the Snow Plus Neutrino Detector at our website, cbc.ca slash ideas. It looks unlike anything else. One bluish orb floats inside a giant globe that appears to be encrusted with jewels. These are the cameras watching for particle activity. Benjamin Tam and his colleagues took Ideas producer Tom Howell for a closer look. are pallets of lead. These are not used in our experiment, but a number of the experiments down here are shielded with lead. Lead is very good at stopping these uh, cosmogenic or these space particles that come down. But the thing about lead is that in the modern era, the lead that we are able to manufacture on, on the surface of the earth is contaminated by the, the nuclear tests that were run over the last hundred years. So the only lead that is good enough for us to use are lead that has been produced thousands of years ago and has been deep underwater and shielded from the nuclear tests that we've been able to run. So this is actually Roman lead, lead that we've recovered from Roman shipwrecks, the only ones pure enough for us to use. In case it's not clear yet, this underground laboratory is huge. Five square kilometers of super clean rooms and corridors. So this, with the area that we are walking up to, is called the cryo pit. It is the largest unoccupied cavern of its size at this depth. Erica Caden is a research scientist at Snow Lab, 
and it was she who showed Ben the ropes when he first began working here on his PhD four years ago. Or rather, she showed him the tubes. His entire job that day was to hold some tubes and not let them go. So while we uh, finished putting on some connections to them. Ah, and what would have happened if he dropped the tubes? He would not be here today. <laughs> ben and Erica are taking me on the scenic route, past all the stages of chemical manufacturing and purification that lead up to the big finish, the neutrino detector itself. Here's another superlative for you. Uh, maybe a little hard to hear and a little too loud, but just remember this thing here, there's a column here. I'll talk about that when we get to slightly quieter areas down A what? Well, it's going to be hard to hear me, but this here is the water uh, purification plant. So the purest water in the world. You can look through this little port. It is just hydrogen and oxygen. So if you look at, say, a bottle of bottled water, it will say certain amounts, parts per million of sodium or potassium or magnesium and so we remove all of those metals and minerals and we add in back just a little bit of nitrogen but it is the some of the the cleanest water uh, so clean in fact that if you were it's delta v system <laughs> oh, we'll call it. do you want me to wait i don't know what does that mean then uh, is it's fine uh, so if you were to drink this water, it would leach out these minerals from your body if you were to drink it. Because we want some of those minerals. We really like the minerals inside our organs doing the body processes we need them to. This water is so pure, it dissolves you when you drink it. <laughs> the scientists use thousands of tons of this pure water to surround the neutrino detector and act as a final layer of defense against unwanted particles gaining entrance. This shield joins the 2,000-meter-thick wall of granite, plus the shockcrete and the acrylic membranes and all the anti-contamination protocols to form essentially the world's finest mesh sieve. But all of that would be to no avail if the chemicals that keep the detector running are themselves full of impurities. So the scientists build their own chemical factories down here as well. Here, this is called the butane dial plant. This is a special dialization process that we invented. It's like a submarine. And, yeah, exactly. I would sell all these tanks are using similar technology. Uh, in fact, we collaborate heavily with people who've worked in applications such as nuclear submarines, for instance. Yep. But here is a new chemical technique that we've developed in order to actually be able to dissolve tellurium within the liquid of our detector. This is the second of the three main chemical plants that we have in the lab. Ben just referred to tellurium. This is an all-important ingredient in the quest to see neutrinos bump into each other. The whole point of putting the tellurium within our detector, which we hope to do in the coming years, is that this tellurium can emit neutrinos in a special way where potentially these neutrinos, they can destroy each other. And that can only happen if a neutrino and its anti-version of itself are the same thing. Um, if that's the case, that explains why we as a people and as things made out of matter and not antimatter can exist at all. That's what creates an imbalance between matter and antimatter. But while we're talking about the tellurium, here what we see is the tellurium purification plant. Eventually, before we can deploy it within the detector, we have to purify it to exceptional levels. One part impurity in 10 to 18 zeros part tellurium. So that all happens in this plant. 
This plant is very unique in that every component of it is built out of plastic. Every weld, every vessel, every pipe, because we don't want the tellurium to interact with metal. It can leach impurities off the metal itself. So here we have a huge industrial-sized purification plant with the sole purpose of purifying tellurium that is entirely built just out of plastic. It's the first of its kind. The grand promise of answering ultimate questions of the cosmos is the main selling feature for this type of science. But when you actually spend time with Ben, it seems what really gets him going are the minute technical points, like how clever it is to make giant underground chemical purification plants out of bits of plastic that you could bring down with you in an elevator. Yeah, so I help construct it. I help put the pipes together and uh, help develop the technique to actually put all the different components together. So it's been a process that's been uh, ongoing for many years now. So uh, again, Snow Plus is an experiment that's expected to last for decades. So construction of this plant has been one of the great milestones over the last couple of years. And I have the pleasure of walking past this corridor every day, right? And I have you know, fond memories of each individual part. You know, it was days of labor to put together in its own correct, proper, purified way. Each one carefully handcrafted with love. There's a nice little crawl space in between these different holes and they're easy I gotta dive into and that, that was a lot of fun uh, working on that. You can see in this cavern here is a similar size cavern to uh, the Snow Plus experiment, the flagship experiment, which is what I work on. Uh, but even this, uh, quite the size of the cavern, the Snow Plus cavern is twice as deep and twice as wide. So that's the scales of the experiment you're looking for. I think you can build an entire cathedral in here, is what people say, up to 10 stories or 20 stories high. We've finally come to the threshold of the Snow Plus neutrino detector. And I am getting pretty excited to see a neutrino. I feel like we're getting closer to the heart of all this. What are you showing me? So this is the sound of data being taken. When enough light is produced inside the center of the detector for enough of our photo sensors to trigger, to say, yes, I see something, and we collect the light that is produced as electronic signals, our main computer assigns each event an identification number, and this sound represents the rate of these events. So right now we have about uh, 2,300 events per second that are being taken. That's how much data we're collecting. When we first started uh, talking to you, Ben, I remember you describing how you had this somewhat rare interaction thing that we were looking for, and you built this great big cathedral and uh, that there would be this flash when the neutrino interacted with something. And I pictured it being a rather sort of peaceful quiet thing and then we would, we would hear a flash going off but when you were talking about the flashes you mean each component of this noise we're listening to yeah so you can see what we're looking at here uh, is this representation of the detector itself the sphere that you can see there and each dot is one of the 10,000 cameras that we call photomultiplier tubes tied directly into the detector so when light hits one of the cameras that's one dot that you can see flashing on the screen now if you can see different patterns of flashes which can represent different particles that are occurring within the detector so maybe I can uh, do that live for you right here Ben sits down at a computer monitor showing me another representation of the detector itself so Right now, you just entered the number 500. 
right now I've set the screen to only display if 500 of the PMTs are lit at the same time. That means something has occurred to produce light that is viewable by 500 of the 10,000 cameras at the same time. So that's typically representative, not of some sort of random vibration or something that's occurred in the light. So you can see here a certain pattern that's appeared that's clearly not just randomly distributed across the entire detector. Is that a neutrino right there? So for me, I don't believe this is a neutrino because a neutrino would produce much more light than just a pattern and in a much wider area across the detector. So this to me looks like a small atom of contamination uh, and you can see right now that we've been looking at this for quite a few seconds and we haven't seen any more similar patterns come up and that's representative of how much contamination is in the detector. So far we've only seen one atom out of the last uh, 20 or 30 seconds. Part of what we're doing right now, you know, I talked about we've purified all the scintillator, the special chemical. What we're doing right now is understanding how often we expect this to happen and that has to do with understanding the amount of contamination that we've introduced to the detector over time because again we try to make it zero but that's of course impossible. This room is an antechamber. It's been carved out of a tunnel and a few meters ahead of us the tunnel emerges right at the top of a cavern. This is the famous cathedral-sized cavern housing the Snowplus detector itself. Between us and it, there's sort of an airlock, several plastic membranes and doors, and we're about to go through them. But first, let's review. At the heart of this detector is a giant water balloon. We have this sphere down there. It's made out of acrylic, and it's 12 meters in diameter. Except it's not a water balloon because now it's full of Ben's special chemical, which he calls the scintillator. For me in particular, my main responsibility during the construction of this experiment was to put in the special chemical, the scintillator chemical, into the detector. My main job was to make sure that the stuff going into the detector was as pure as possible. You can imagine there's 1,000 tons of this chemical inside, and even a single gram of contamination would destroy the entire experiment. The chemical lights up when a neutrino hits a particle inside it, and the light gets picked up by all the cameras they've got trained on the water balloon. 10,000 special cameras we call photomultiplier tubes, or PMTs. Each one is sensitive enough to see a candle if it was on the moon. There's only one way into this contraption. It's through a sort of bottle cap. It's about the size of an outhouse, and no one's allowed to go in. Even our skin, the potassium in our bodies from our sweat, would create a background on anything that goes into the detector. So if we have those bits of potassium, they're creating light, and we then don't get to see the light from the neutrino interactions that we're looking for. The closest we can go is to stand next to the bottle cap on a platform suspended over the experiment. This means entering the cavern itself, and to do that, I have to step inside a transparent cubicle and receive something called an air shower. Happy showering! One problem with coming into the cavern to get a look is that it's extremely dark. Right. So. What you see, where we are right now, is on top of the experiment itself. And just an inch under you is uh, 7,000 tons of water that we use to shield the experiment. And uh, just a, lo a little below that is the circular volume of the experiment itself. 
The reason it's dark is because we don't want any trace amounts of light to leak through any of the systems and cause unnecessary light within our detector itself. Again, we have cameras down there that can detect small packets of light. You can see all these little flashing lights here, or all these lights on these crates. These are the electronics that are the brain of the experiment itself. So each of these lights is hooked up to one of the 10,000 cameras we use to try to observe these particle events within the detector. By the twinkling of these 10,000 tiny lights, we can just about see our surroundings. We're in a chamber roughly the shape of a yurt, and it's a meeting place of very high and very low tech. Erica points out the important job that's being done by some rope. There is a rope net that is slung on top of the detector and anchored down into the rock at the bottom of the cavity below us. If it didn't do that, the detector, filled with the light scintillator liquid, would float to the top of the hyperpure water that it's sitting in. And talking of that hyperpure water that fills the void around the detector, it's the scene of another rather low-tech adventure. So while we were filling this cavity with water, a very important thing we had to do was deploy a boat. And we paddled around the inside of the detector, continuously the whole way up to manually inspect the surface of the detector for any leaks. So this is where we have the world's deepest underground boating trip. Paddling around boating, making sure any tool you have or any piece of hardware that you're using is tied off so you don't drop it and it goes down to the bottom. The first time I came to Snow Lab, uh, walking on deck here, knowing the amazing results of the snow experiment, I was interviewing to work on Snow Plus, and I was in absolute awe coming on deck, standing here, looking at all of this infrastructure. Uh, all of the people who have worked on different components, this steel structure that holds things up, that did all of the tests on the different paints, are they compatible or not? Uh, everyone who cleaned all of the pieces of uh, Unistrut to build this clean room tent. All of the work that every, the different people, hundreds, thousands of people have done to create this space just so we can, can do the science, so we can study the physics to answer these questions about neutrinos that we have. It's, it's mind-boggling every day to me. Even if there was a way to climb through that bottle cap entry point while the detector is running and stick your head inside the ultra-pure water surrounding the detector and not get dissolved and happen to be there just as a neutrino bumps into a particle of scintillator liquid lighting up the whole sphere, you probably still wouldn't see anything. The flash in the scintillator liquid happens too quickly for a naked eye to notice. We're stuck using the computer monitors in the antechamber and the data collection tube that constantly makes a horrible noise. So that would be something you would see here. Again, it only happens uh, once every couple of hours, so you'd be pretty lucky if you're staring at this and see the beautiful light of the neutrino, but it does happen on a regular occurrence. Okay, but if I sat here for a couple of hours, I know we don't have a couple of hours because i got to get back in the cage, but um, if I sat here for a couple of hours, I might well see that little globe turn like all yellow. Absolutely, I would expect it, yeah. And it's a regular occurrence and something that we understand fairly well at this stage. It's not 100% accurate to say that Ben and his colleagues are down here to look for neutrinos. What they're really looking for is to get so accustomed to seeing neutrinos that they will notice when a couple of them don't show up. What we're hoping is that the two neutrinos, when they hit each other, they destroy each other. 
and that would fundamentally change our understanding of many parts of the universe, including how the universe was actually created to begin with. We only believe that this interaction could happen. So if we do see it happening, then that would be that would be big news. And there's many groups around the world who are looking for this exact same interaction. So it's a yeah, it's certainly the race is on to see who can do this first. Yeah. We will look for a reaction, uh, a decay of a uh, nucleus of an element called tellurium. It's called tellurium-130. If we have this decay where no neutrinos come out, we only see two electrons come out of this decay, it will tell us something about the nature of the neutrino that no other reaction can tell us. It will tell us that the neutrino is its own antiparticle, and it is fundamentally different from every other particle we know to exist. We're immersed in a sea of neutrinos, so it's likely that billions and billions of them do this at any given moment through our bodies. But again, as the ghost particle, it's very hard for us to actually see it, detect it, and capture it and measure it, which is what we're trying to do. This is one of the most pressing questions in particle physics at this time. As you can imagine, we know for sure that this is a possibility, and this would answer one of the big human questions, right? You know, the origin of the universe. So our most direct competitor is an Italian experiment called Quare. So that's a, uh, located underground at the Gran Sasso National Laboratories in Italy. And these guys, uh, they build their tellurium into crystals. They grow crystals, and they wait for these crystals to vibrate when they... Uh, release their neutrinos. So they're trying to see these really small vibrations. That's their technique. So their technique has an advantage in that they are able to create these crystals very purely. But our technique has an advantage in that if we want to double the amount of tellurium, which means doubling the chance of seeing it, we just have to dump in more more tellurium. They have to grow a whole other experiment, a whole other set of crystals. So they have the advantage in purity and we have the advantage in mass. Wow, and how long does it take them to make these crystals? Well, I mean, these experiments take decades to create, right? Oh, so okay. they're trying to double the size <laughs> of the experiment. That's like building a whole other experiment. <laughs> All right. Because, I mean, I want to find out the origin of the universe and everything, but I definitely don't want the Italians to do it before <laughs> the Canadians do. <laughs> but there's many other experiments as well in the world that are working on this. Um, the Americans have a project that's coming up, uh, and there's also, you know, Germans also have a project that's coming up. So there's a lot of different experiments. Again, in the world of particle physics, this is the most pressing question or one of the most pressing questions who would you least want to win <laughs> well I, I would say that right now because i'm looking for jobs i don't want to say that too loudly <laughs> <laughs> okay, so the race is on and tom and ben are now both out of the snow lab hole and into the studio hi ben Oh, hey. So we had this big voyage. I walked out of there, amazed by all the deepest, cleanest, everything. I still am not quite sure <laughs> why, why exactly this, this thing you're going to put in there, this tellurium we're all waiting for, why do we think two neutrinos are going to jump out right in front of you and zap each other? Right. So many unstable particles, they exhibit beta decay. So they zap out a electron and an antineutrino. Now, that's a really well understood. We see this all the time, and it's actually very easy to observe. Now, something that we also know is true, and we have seen in the past, is that very few elements can do double uh, beta decay. So that's when it shoots out two electrons and two antineutrinos at the same time. So tellurium is one of the elements that's capable of doing this, and we know this really well. Uh, 
Now, because it shoots out these two antineutrinos at the same time, it creates this microscopic environment where these two antineutrinos are right next to each other. So it's possible that, you know, rarely these two will see each other as they exit this, uh, this nucleus of the particle and eliminate each other there. So that's what we're looking for. Just the one in a billion, billion chance that this will happen as we regularly see the tellurium do its normal business. Wow. And and give me a timeline here. When do you expect this massive experiment to be able to land? Well, that's the, the million-dollar question here. Of course, like you were saying, there's a bit of a competition around the world, but everyone has to do everything right. You don't, you don't get second chances here because once we put in the tellurium, if we don't do it correctly, it's very, very hard to pull it and do it again. So uh, as you saw on the ground, the plants are constructed, the experiment is running, everything is good to go, but we still need just the last little bit of research and development to make sure that when we do this, we do this right the first time. So we're hoping to have this first tellurium in some point this year. But, you know, there's a, a couple of tons of tellurium that will go into the experiment. Each individual atom of this has to be, you know, inspected and cleaned and purified through the plastic plant you saw on the ground. So that is a process that, that will all, alone take uh, a couple of years itself. Uh, so with this tellurium experiment and this massive uh, undertaking, you like you said at the beginning of the show, you're you're trying to explain what is the origin of the universe, which is... Obviously, the hugest question imaginable. So, uh, just to back us up a little to something that might be easier to grasp is the question of your own origin story. How did you end up wanting to pursue particle astrophysics in the first place? Was this something you've been passionate about since you were a kid? Oh, yeah, certainly. I think uh, every child, you can look at space and look at the space shuttle program and, and look at the different contributions that you know we've made, uh, the Canada arm and, and the International Space Station. I think that's really inherently quite neat. So growing up with that and growing up, you know, watching Star Wars and Star Trek, it's, it's all part of the imagination to be part of the solution that moves us in, in a future where we have that sort of technology and we have that sort of ability to understand space. So mm. that's the sort of the journey that, that led me to this world of particle astrophysics. Mm. Tell us about your parents. Are they scientific or what? Yeah, so both of my parents were engineers and uh, they both uh, grew up in Hong Kong in kind of the most depraved levels of poverty imaginable. My, my mother uh, grew up in a, in a mud hut with her uh, six siblings um, and all their belongings were belongings were destroyed in Typhoon Wanda. So uh, my, my mother in particular was won some exam competition and got to study at Oxford University when she was young and um, went back to Hong Kong as an engineer. Uh, so, you know, they, they finally made it out and moved to Canada, made a life for themselves a couple of years before I was born. Um, but certainly they, they didn't have the opportunities that I did, but I think both of them would have loved to study science and space the way that, um, that I have had the opportunity to here in Canada. Do they understand the thing about the neutrino? Uh, yeah, yeah, I think so. Um, <laughs> especially, I mean, you can imagine I, I, quite, I like to talk quite a bit, right? So uh, they, if they haven't understood by now, they certainly pretend to, so I shut up. <laughs> and while we're asking probing questions about your personal life, I understand that love blossomed way down in the hole. What's the story there? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, me and my partner, we met underground when she was an engineer working on one of the purification plants that I, I showed you. So I you know, like to tell everyone that she once uh, ensured the quality of our scintillator, and now she ensures the quality of my life. 
Oh, <laughs> scintillates your heart. <laughs> now, now this place it had the deepest everything. It seems like the deepest toilets. Is this the deepest romance that has ever blossomed on Earth? Well, I think、uh, we can push that story, and I, I, I'll claim that unless anyone, anyone else、uh, stands up and says otherwise. <laughs> Maybe the Guinness Book of Records can get in on, on this one. And I, I understand that、uh, you are heading to Oxford University any day now. What will you be doing there? Yep. So I will be a、uh, postdoctoral fellow with the Natural Science and Engineering Council of Canada. That's、uh, NSERC, and I will continue working on the Snow Plus experiment. Like I said, this is a decades-long experiment. So I'll be chiefly working on the next phase, where we're actually putting in the tellurium, understanding how that works, making sure that everything is going smoothly in this years-long process to continue the experiment and to, to continue to try to find the solution to a great problem we're looking for. You can control it all from your laptop in Oxford, or would you be coming back and going down the hole again? Yeah, so I, I plan to come back、uh, fairly regularly from from Oxford to make sure I can see everything on site. I think it's very important to be able to, you know, lovingly handcraft each of the pieces and make sure everything is running smoothly. Well, congratulations, Ben. Like this has been quite a trip. I loved learning all about your work, and、uh, yeah, and congratulations. It's quite an endeavor. Yeah, I appreciate it, and I hope you had a good good time looking at this, and had a lot of fun going underground with me. <laughs> sure did. Bye, Ben.、Uh, talk to you later. On ideas, you are listening to the Ghost Particle. It is part of our ongoing series, Ideas from the Trenches, where we highlight PhD research across the country. The series is produced by Tom Howell and Nikola Lukšić. If you're a PhD student and are interested in sharing your work with us, drop us a line. You can do so through our website, cbc.ca/ideas. Special thanks to Alexandra Fernandez at Queen's University campus and community radio station CFRC. And to Bertrand Odom Reed, director of Cornell University's broadcast studio. Thank you as well to Miles and Simone Sevet. Technical production: Danielle Duval. Our web producer is Lisa Ayuso. Senior producer: Nikola Lukšić. Greg Kelly is the executive producer of Ideas, and I'm Nala Ayed. Once we put the tellurium in, I'll、uh, I'll give you another call. You know, in case you're still interested. Yeah, <laughs> please do. We're invested. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. No, it's.、Uh, I, I think not many scientists like to talk to the public about this, but I, I think it's really important. So, at any opportunity I get, I'll make sure to to bother you. You know. All right. Yeah. Well, keep keep us posted.、For more CBC podcasts, go to cbc.ca/podcasts.